Well, good morning, Heritage family. Um, I am delighted to be here with you. Uh, and as Kicker said, good morning or afternoon or evening or whenever you're watching this. Uh, I trust that you're doing well. I, I really hope you are. Uh, I miss you. In fact, last night I was um, writing out birthday cards. And as I wrote out birthday cards, I looked at the name, prayed for the name, and then visualized because is I saw your name. Uh, for those of you who are regular attenders, that's most of you, uh, I, I could see where you sit in the congregation. And uh, I miss seeing your faces today, but I'm going to do my best, like I said last week, to visualize uh, you sitting there. Um, if you're a member, uh, we're just pleased that you're joining in this way. I know that some of you invited friends, and we've invited some of our friends, so please feel uh, a part of our family today and join in with everything that uh, we have done in the singing. I know you have, and now that you would listen intently to God's Word as it's preached. I want to pray for us, and um, in this prayer, I'm going to pray for several needs that I'm aware of the church family over the last couple of weeks and pray for the the whole situation in our state, uh, in our country, and in the world. And uh, I know I'm going to leave some stuff out, but please join me uh, as we pray. And even from your place of watching, join me with a, a hearty amen uh, during the prayer and as we conclude it. So join me, please, before we enter into the sermon uh, today. Uh, join me in prayer. Almighty God, our Father, we praise you, we worship you. We adore you. We hope that we do that more than just with our feelings, but with our hearts. We pray that today uh, might be truly uh, a day when we continue. We've already started a day of worship of our uh, great uh, Lord and Savior, even Jesus Christ. We uh, pray that you would teach us as we study together. And Father, I just want to pray for our church family, for our church fellowship, and um, the, the needs that are all around us. I want to lift up to you over the past week or so some recent surgeries and people that are recovering. I think of Penny Dabbs and Dick Ealing and Stephen Cooksey who had emergency appendectomy. I pray that all of them would be recovering. I pray for sweet Clara McWhorter uh, who had a seizure this last week and was taken to Mercy ICU, and Lord, I pray for Diana Plum, her, her daughter, who can't even go into the room with her. I pray that you would bless and be with uh, our sweet Clara. Pray for all of our homebound people, and uh, Lord, that you would bless them, and the fact that they cannot get out, that you would be with them, be very close to them, and in fact, everybody who is staying at home, um, some gratefully, and uh, some are ready to be back out. Father, I pray for our president, for our vice president, for the task force, for the incredible job that they are doing in spite of everything that is going on. I pray for our frontline workers, uh, for our medical people, and for uh, others, police officers, and others who are on the front lines. And Lord, I ask you in the name of Jesus to be merciful to us, to bring an end to this pandemic that is upon us, but not before, Lord, uh, 
you teach us what we need to know. And I'm talking about individually. I'm talking about in our families. I'm talking about corporately as a church and our nation and, uh, Lord, in our world. We don't know all that you're doing, but we believe that you are doing something. So, Lord, whether it's just a, a time of trial or testing or even winnowing, I pray that you would help us to do what we need to do. If it's to repent, not only, again, individually, as a family, as a church, as a nation, I pray that we would do that. If it's to believe in you more, your sovereign goodness, that you are God and that you are good, or if it's simply to learn and to grow in the midst of this, we pray that you would do that in our lives. Thank you for hearing us as we prayer, as we pray. And Father, we now make this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 19. Uh, you'll see that the scripture is verses 28 through 44. We're going to read this in, in chunks, okay? Um, this is Palm Sunday. And today we're going to be looking at the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life, of his entry into Jerusalem. And as we read through this, I want you to notice something. Maybe you've never seen this before, but really the, the entry into Jerusalem uh, coming right up to Jerusalem is in two different parts. If you'll notice the headings that are probably in your Bibles, um, the first heading is called the triumphal entry. And uh, one of the questions that I came up with when I was studying this particular part of the passage was when I looked at the second part of it, and you'll see the heading says, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. My question was, and my question is today, why, if Jesus' entry was triumphal, why did he weep? Jesus triumphed as Messiah, the King of Israel, bringing salvation to his people, but he wept because he knew that many people in that crowd would miss it. Let me invite you to turn to, and you've already got it, hopefully, your, your, your Bible or your smart device, Luke chapter 19. We'll begin reading with verse 28. We'll read through verse 25 and then make some comments on that uh, before we move on. Verse 28, chapter 19, the Gospel of Luke. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his, of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, 
you need to get the gist of this. In no uncertain terms, I believe in this passage, and, and you've got to see it, Jesus was declaring himself to be God. Now, in the next passage that we read, you're going to see that Jesus, in no uncertain terms, was declaring that he not only is God in human flesh, but that he's also the Messiah. This is an incredible story, and a question just pops up in my mind. So, here's God, here's Jesus declaring himself to be God, declaring himself to be the Messiah of the Jews and the world. So, what does a donkey have to do with Jesus being God? Here's what I want you to do. If you've got your Bible open, you've got a pen, you're taking notes, circle in verse 31 the word, the name, Lord, and then go down to chapter 34 and circle again the word Lord, the name Lord. The Lord has need of it. Ah, I searched the commentaries, tried to figure out what's going on here with this statement. Is this a picture of the supernatural taking place? Or was, as some commentators say, was this all pre-planned? Did Jesus figure this out? Did he talk to these people beforehand so that when it came time to get the donkey, there would be no problems with it? Or was this, as I don't know that I'd seen any commentators say it, but is this just a Jedi mind trick? Tell them the Lord has need of it. Frankly, reading some of the commentators, I just don't get it. I don't understand why people have such a problem with the miraculous. And that's what I see right here with the donkey and with the owners. Remember this, Jesus created everything and Jesus is Lord of all. He left no doubt of that. He said, if, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And the people who heard him certainly understood what he meant because it says that he picked up stones and they were ready to kill him. And then he asked the question, why are you trying to kill me? And he said, you are making yourself out to be God. Folks, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord over all. He showed it throughout the Gospels over and over again. And his miracles were not one-off kinds of situations. It was a daily lifestyle with him. He showed that he was Lord over satanic temptation and demonic possession. He showed that he was Lord over every conceivable form of sickness and disease and congenital defect. He showed that he was Lord over death itself over physical needs, not once, but twice, when he took crowds of thousands of people and fed them with a handful of food. He showed that he is Lord over nature when he walked on water, when he calmed the storm, when he turned the water into wine, 
And when he not only got the owners to release the donkey by saying simply, the Lord has need of it, but I'm not sure what the greater miracle is that they were able to take the donkey and bring it back to Jesus or that Jesus was able to sit on an unbroken donkey, one that had never been ridden. Jesus said, believe in me. And he said, even, even if it's hard to believe in me for the things that I've said, for the things that I've proclaimed to you, listen to what he said in John chapter 10. He said, then believe the works that I do that you may know and that you may understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. So the, the first part of our story of the triumphal entry, Jesus is absolutely without a doubt saying that I am the Lord of all. I am God. Now the second part is found in Luke 19 verses 36 through 40. Read along with me because the second part shows him riding up to Jerusalem as the promised Messiah. Listen to this. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Do you know how many prophecies there are in the Old Testament? I've read a number of different uh, articles and commentaries, and I find that people say there are anywhere between 70 very clear-cut messianic prophecies and up to a total of 400 different prophecies. But the real issue is not that, however many there were. How many of those prophecies did Jesus fulfill? What's the answer? I want you to say it with me at home. He fulfilled all of them. Not only did he just kind of fulfill them, he fulfilled all of the prophecies in incredible detail. Because Jesus is Lord, because he is God, and also he alone fulfills messianic prophecies. In fact, Matthew actually telling the story is a little bit clearer because he goes to the, to the prophecy, the messianic prophecy that Jesus is referring to here out of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. You can look at it on the screen, but follow along and, and look how closely what's recorded here in Luke parallels with it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. All of that was going on. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now get a picture of this. This prophecy was made 
500 years before this particular incident. So the triumphal part of this story is that not only is Jesus God, but that Jesus entered into Jerusalem as Messiah as well as God, asserting in no uncertain terms, if he were to say it today in colloquial terms, he'd say, look, people, I'm the guy. I am your king. I am your God. I am your Messiah. Now, the real question is, did they get it? Did they recognize the time of their visitation? You know, there's no doubt there was a large crowd. That's what John says. Matthew says the whole city stirred. Now, at that time, it's estimated Jerusalem had a population of anywhere between 80 and 100,000. Were all of the people there at that particular place in that crowd? Probably not, but there were enough people there of the population of Jerusalem that the Pharisees would say the whole world has gone after him. And all four Gospels record that they cried out, that they shouted with loud voices, with great praise and joy. But, but then the story, and this next part is a part of this story of the triumphal entry. All of a sudden, the scene changes dramatically. Look back at this passage, Luke 19, and just follow along as I read verses 41 through 44. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. Now stop right there. That word wept is not the same word that was used about the weeping that Jesus did at the tomb of Lazarus. This is a term unlike the weeping at the tomb of Lazarus was a, a, a quiet a soft kind of sobbing. This was from the, the bottom of his being, a loud cry. This was weeping out loud. Verse 42, he said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barrier around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know or recognize the time of your visitation." Do you see the contrast? The crowd cheered, but the Savior wept. Why? You see, Jesus was not impressed with their immediate response. Even though they had excitement and, and they were having an incredible experience, and they even knew the things about the prophesied Messiah, Jesus knew that they would not continue to follow them, or at least many of them in the crowd. He wept because there he was right in front of them, and they wouldn't even recognize the time of their visitation. 
And so what Jesus does, if you read that carefully, he jumps 40 years into the future, telling them that they would be judged for their rejection of him. Now, that's the story, but I'd like to apply it. So let me give you three quick things that I believe are good applications, not only for the people living then, but for us living down uh, now. The first thing is this, the first application that I would make for, for followers of Jesus Christ and for people who think that they are followers of Jesus Christ. Here's the first one. True discipleship is more than enthusiasm or emotions. I tried to alliterate. I could have used emotions, but I used enthusiasm. It, let me say it in another way. Strong feelings for Jesus is not the same as following Jesus. This massive crowd, whatever else you can say about them, you can say they were enthusiastic. Think of it this way. It says very clearly that they destroyed trees. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says that they cut off palm branches. Folks, there wasn't just a local palm branch store that they went down and bought palm branches to throw in the path of Jesus. They had to wreck trees. They cut them off, the palm branches, and they threw them down. Not only that, they threw their coats on the dirty road. There was loud shouting. There was cheering. I was thinking back, and this goes back to some ancient history in my past. Two, two different stories that I thought about when I thought about this crowd as Jesus was coming in. And here they are lining the road, one on one side, one on the other, and they're just, they're enthusiastic. I remember a long time ago attending a Promise Keepers meeting in Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. I don't know how many of you remember the Promise Keepers, but we attended that meeting, and it was, it was packed. The, the arena was packed with, with men from all over the nation. And so before the speakers started uh, speaking at one particular juncture, uh, everybody was, was rowdy, and they were doing beach balls and, and bumping them around. And all of a sudden, a chant started over on the other side. We love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? And they stopped. And well, we knew what to do, but we wanted to do it a little bit louder. We love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? And then after we stopped, they came back and it grew louder and louder and louder. And I can almost imagine that that was the same kind of thing that might have been happening on that road as Jesus rode the donkey between the two parts of the crowd. We, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? It was even earlier than that. When I was a youth pastor in Plano, Texas, and uh, we took our youth group to Six Flags Over Texas. They used to have at Six Flags Over Texas. I have no idea if they have them anymore, but they would have church day at Six Flags Over Texas. So that would be the day when all of the church groups, the youth groups would come, and there would be all of these Christians, and there would be Christian 
paraphernalia where you could buy it. I, I think the rides were the same. I don't know if they were able to Christianized the rides, but they had all of these entertainers and performers, and they had one guy there. Now, some of you will have no idea who I'm talking about, but back in around 1980, this guy was really one of my favorite artists because of his heart and the songs that he wrote, a guy by the name of Tim Shepard. And so I told all of my young people, this guy is great, we're going to go. And so we went into this, this huge room. Tim Shepard is down there, he comes out, and, the, and the, I, I mean, the place was rocking. And, and it was just yelling and shouting. There was so much enthusiasm, and Tim started playing, and you almost couldn't hear him. And, and I saw him do this. this. This was just, it was incredible. He stopped playing. The crowd kept going. And he put his hand across the piano. And he leaned his hand, leaned his head onto his arm. And he just stayed there like that. And, and I was watching this and I was wondering. I even turned to Jan. I said, do you think he's sick? He doesn't feel good? And as the, the, the kids, all of the students that were in there and the sponsors began to notice that he was not playing, that his head was down on his arm, they, they quieted down. And when they got quiet enough, you could hear Tim in the microphone weeping. The place was, was, was silent. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. And after a few minutes, he raised his head and he started talking to the students. Basically what we're saying here, he said, students, feelings, even strong feelings, enthusiasm for Jesus is not the same thing as following Jesus. Do you remember Jesus teaching in the parable of the sower? The sower sows his seed, in other words, Jesus visits with his good news of salvation. The second soil, it says, received the word, responded immediately. It said the word just sprang up. They received it, it says, with great joy. But then they fell away almost as quickly as they had sprang up. They didn't follow Jesus. It says that temptation and persecution and affliction were the things that drew them away. But the thing about it was that enthusiasm did not help them maintain a walk with Jesus, and they were destined for destruction. Now, please, 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 do not hear me saying that I am against appropriate excitement or enthusiasm or being expressive in your life or in corporate worship about Jesus. In fact, frankly, I believe that some Christians and some churches could use a little bit more enthusiasm about Jesus. Looking at them throughout most of their life, the average person would get the impression that following Jesus is about the most miserable thing that you can do. And also, to say that we're against enthusiasm, 
appropriate enthusiasm or excitement or being expressive, that would be to negate Jesus' clear words in response to the Pharisees' rebuke. What I'm saying is that you and I ought to be excited about Jesus in life and in worship. And if that means for you, with, with heartfelt expression, that you lift your hands in worship, or that you say a hearty amen, or maybe even that you shout, we might need to talk about that one. I heard someone say before that, man, if you've got a good shout, don't hold it in, because if you hold it in, it'll hurt you. But here's what I believe this word is saying to us. It's a powerful application. The integrity of your celebration and your enthusiasm on Sunday, and usually that's when it's relegated to, it's on Sunday, will only be completed by the integrity of your obedience in following Jesus on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and so on. Jesus knew that their rejoicing on this particular Sunday would turn to rejecting on Friday. Their cheers would become jeers. Glory to God would become crucify Him, and they would miss the day of their visitation. And Jesus wept. So the first thing is that true discipleship, following Jesus, is more than emotions, but it's also true discipleship is more than an experience. In other words, having an experience with Jesus is not the same thing as following with Jesus. Now, within the crowd, and it's very plain that it says this in the book of Luke, within that crowd of people from throughout Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, was a number of his disciples. We just don't know how many. But we do know that Jesus had the 12, okay? Then he had a larger group of the 70 that he sent out. I don't know how much larger that group got. We do know that on the day of Pentecost that it had become a number of disciples of about 120. But my guess is that it was substantially more than that. Do you remember in John chapter 6 when Jesus began saying some things that were very difficult for them to accept that it is recorded that many of his disciples departed and did not walk with him anymore? So, in other words, I don't know how many were in the crowd that were his disciples, but I will say this, for those who had been following him for three years or, or almost three years, this was, no doubt, the greatest experience that they had ever had with him. It, it would be for them the pinnacle of their success. If you had put this in today's 
terms some preachers today would think like this, and even as I wrote these things down, I, I thought of myself. What a temptation it is to live in an experience. To say something like they might have said, man, look at this, we've arrived. Finally, we're going to get the recognition we deserve. Just look at all of the people following us. Now, yeah, yeah, they're following Jesus, but we're kind of included with him. They love us. They're joining our church. Or to put it in today's terms, wow, look at how many likes I have on that Facebook or Instagram post. Look at how many views I have on my latest YouTube video. Peter fell into this. I, I think there are a lot of people who do. And I'm talking about true Christians, but, but people who think they're Christians and are, are not are included in that group. But, but think about Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and with John. And, and he had again, no doubt, one of the most powerful experiences that any person could have. So what was his response? His response, like ours can be sometimes, was to park on his experience. He said, oh, Jesus, this, this is so great. Why don't we just build tabernacles and hang around here with Elijah and Moses and you? The Father's voice came out of heaven basically let Peter know that he was not to park on something that could become a substitute for following Jesus. I, I really don't know how many conversations I have had through the years with unchurched people, and I'll begin to share with them about the gospel. I'll share with them about Jesus and about the, the, the nature of the, the family of God, the church, and again, over and over, it's happened where somebody will say, oh, oh, you misunderstand. I'm a Christian. Now, you've got to remember that I'm talking to a person who is not in church, has not darkened the doors of a church in years, perhaps, doesn't follow Christ, doesn't follow the things of God. And yet, they will say, oh, oh, I'm a Christian. Or maybe they come from a Baptist background, so they'll say it like this. Oh, I'm saved and I'll say, really? Why do you say that? And so often they would say, well, I had this incredible experience with God as a child. I walked the aisle. Or I went to Falls Creek. I had a wonderful experience there. And they'll tell me that they are relying on, they are parking on something that has become a substitute for following Jesus Christ. Just like I said about emotions, I am not against having an experience that was very, very real. But you cannot depend upon that experience, no matter how powerful, unless it results in a changed and a changing life that is and let's put the, this word in here, imperfectly, not perfectly, but imperfectly following Jesus Christ. Jesus knew, and Jesus knows, 
that some of his disciples would park on an experience and they would miss the day of his visitation and he still weeps. There's a third truth that grows out of this story that, that we're telling today of the triumphal entry. Not only true discipleship is more than emotions, true discipleship is more than an experience, but true discipleship is more than, and I'm going to use a word so I can alliterate, alliterate, and that is it is more than education. In other words, knowing facts, knowing truth about Jesus is not the same thing as following Jesus. Isn't it amazing that people can know so much about Jesus and still miss him? They did it then, and they still do it today, all the time. They do it in churches on Sunday, all across the land, all across the world, heads filled with Bible stories, memorized Bible verses, truths about Jesus, but hearts that have never submitted to him as their God and as their Messiah. And Jesus' assessment of that was that he wept because it was so incredibly tragic. Now, he tells something, and you really need to read this to figure out what is going on here. Again, Jesus was looking into the future. When in 70 AD, Titus and his Roman army would come and they would throw up a barricade against Jerusalem and they would devastate Jerusalem. Josephus estimates that there were as many as one million Jews that were killed. But listen to what Jesus is getting at as tragic, listen, as tragic as that destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the death of all of those people would be, Jesus was most grieved that his people would miss the day of their visitation. They would miss, don't miss what he says, that which makes for peace. You see, the real tragedy, no matter if it's back then with the destruction of, of an army or even today with the destruction of the body due to an illness of something like the COVID virus, that's not the greatest tragedy. Is it a tragedy? Yes. But the greatest tragedy is the eternal tragedy that people then and people today would miss the day of their visitation. Jesus mentions peace. You, you, you didn't know what made for peace, the things that make for peace. What does it take to make for peace that is real and deep and lasting? Here's what it takes, Jesus and his salvation. What does it say in Zechariah? It says that he is the one coming into Jerusalem. He is the Messiah bringing his salvation. The gospel message that we are undone without Christ. That Jesus has been sent into the world as our Redeemer. And that he was crucified, dead, and raised on the third day for our salvation. That by repenting of our sins and turning by faith to Jesus Christ, the truth of Christ, 
that we can experience his salvation and therefore experience true peace with God. By the way, that's the best kind of peace so that we can have peace in our hearts. You know, it's interesting. I read several things about Jesus weeping. And, and, and I was amazed how often Jesus weeping was seen as weeping for us, that he understands us. But you've got to see who Jesus weeps for here. He weeps aloud for those who miss him. And he makes this very personal. Look at the very last line um, there in verse 44. And he says, because you did not know or recognize the time of your visitation. He changes it a little bit. Normally we would say of my visitation, that I have come. But he says, no, you have the possibility of missing the time of your visitation when I have come to you, just as he did in the triumphal entry. You see, Jesus really is standing right in front of you. Jesus really is who he said he was. He is Lord. He is God. And he is Savior. We come to a time in our service, and most of you know that, where I invite you to respond. Not necessarily by coming down, but responding to the truth that you hear in your hearts. And you can respond right where you are. I extend this invitation to you today. Jesus is standing right in front of you. Don't miss him. Don't let potentially good things, excitement, experience, education become substitutes for knowing and following the Lord Jesus Christ. You might be asking today, well, how will I, how will I know? How, how will I know when the, the day of my visitation, when Jesus comes to me? Here's how you know. The writer to the Hebrews says, today, 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 if you hear his voice, if you have heard the word of God speaking to you, the Holy Spirit opens your heart and your mind to receive that. Today, if you hear his voice, today is the day of salvation. Now, I left out a part of that verse. Do you know what it is in the middle of those words, those phrases? Don't harden your heart. Know and recognize the day of your visitation. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that we have been able to open your word and glean, I trust, insights into how we might respond. This is not just a story that happened 2,000 years ago and Jesus weeping over people who were very enthusiastic and They had a wonderful experience, and they knew a lot of stuff about him. But they missed him. 
Lord, this is a story for us today, and so I pray that if anyone in their home listening to this message this morning knows that he or she is hearing the voice of the Lord speaking to him or her today, that today would be the day of salvation, that he or she would open his or her heart and would confess their sin and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as God and as Messiah, that they would not harden their hearts. So thank you, Lord, for this time of worship. Now bless us as we sing together one final song and then have a word of benediction and go out from this place. We love you and we praise you as we enter into this celebration of the resurrection season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.